You could call him the king of all media, at least the baseball part. We'll talk with Joe Sheehan about Biogenesis, his newsletter, the anemic White Sox, player facts and flukes, and more, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Pitch is a high fly ball to right deep, going back is Tarasco to the warning track, to the wall, he's under it now, and it's taken away from him by a fan, and they're going to call it a home run, I can't believe it. Richie Garcia is calling it a home run, and Tarasco is out to argue, a terrible call by Richie Garcia, it's all time. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of June the 14th. It's show number 22 of the 2013 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to Joe Sheehan, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll open with player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with columnist Jock Thompson. We'll have our weekly chat with Todd Zola from the Fantasy Sports Trade Association Conference in Chicago. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Houston outfield prospect George Springer. In our HQ Matchup segment, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at Roberto Hernandez against the Royals and Jason Hamill against the Detroit Tigers. And in Master Notes, it's an old familiar friend, Baseball HQ founder Ron Chandler, talking this week about the Tulo Maneuver. It's another big show, one of our biggest ever, in fact. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. We should be going extra innings. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, if it seems like we've had a lot of long extra inning games the last week or so, we sure have. On Thursday, there was a 13-inning game, a 14-inning game, and an 18-inning marathon between the Yankees and A's in Oakland. Last Monday, the Red Sox and Rays went 14 innings, and last Saturday, the Marlins and Mets went 20, and the Jays and Rangers went 18. And let's not forget the first game of the Stanley Cup Finals went three overtime periods before we had a winner. So in honor of all that extra play, it's an extra-long podcast for you this week, one of our longest ever. And it all starts with the first inning of our show, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Let's start with the obvious big story of the week in the National League. Uh, All-star shortstop Troy Tulowitzki of Colorado. And here's a surprise. He's on the DL. This time he has some kind of rib issue. They say four to six weeks. Sometimes it can be a little longer for those things. And also, no surprise, they've recalled Josh Rutledge from AAA to take his spot. Josh Rutledge was sent down uh, about a month ago, uh, struggling with uh, in the field and also struggling a bit with his bit with his bat. Uh, he was uh, power seemed to be there in terms of home runs, five home runs, at 157 at bats compared to eight in 277 a year ago. But uh, his batting average was down to 242. And his slugging was actually down. I mean, slugging was only 357 this year compared to 469 a year ago. And what that's showing us is there were a lot of doubles happening last year that were not happening this year. So they sent Rutledge down to work on his, uh, work on his bat and his glove. Uh, and uh, now he's back. And I, 
you know, the, the, I, I think there are several things going on with Rutledge. If you take a look at what's there, his ground ball rate was way up this year, uh, and, and that, that was probably a real culprit in terms of uh, the lack of doubles that we were seeing out of, out of Rutledge's bat. I was looking at his ground ball fly ball split as well, Nick, and while a lot of his line drives appear to have become uh, ground balls, which is never good, uh, his line drives are down 6%, his ground balls are up about 8%, but even last year when he was f- apparently doing fairly well with, uh, with the home run power and got everybody excited, he was right around 50% ground ball rate and only 30% fly ball rate, and that's not the kind of split you want to see if you're expecting home run power out of a guy. Yeah, no, that's very true. I mean, a PX last year was 126, which is okay, but was not uh, not huge. But at the same time, uh, you, you don't expect a whole lot of power out of a middle infielder. So if the guy's going to hit 275 and slug 4 470, that's probably okay. But if he's going to hit 240 and slug 350, that's not okay. So uh, just a little bit of a difference here could make a real difference in terms of what Rutledge does. And the question is, can he turn things around now that he's uh, now that he's back in the majors? And I have another worry, Nick, and, and tell me what you think. One of the reasons that Rutledge was sent down in the first place was to work on his defense. His glove work at second base was not optimal, and, and of course, Walt Weiss is a former middle infielder and more known for defensive prowess than for his bat. And oftentimes it seems managers who play a, played a certain position in the big leagues and were were good defensively often transfer that into their roster, and they'll look at a guy like Rutledge, even if he's hitting well, and say, maybe subconsciously, I don't know, they'll say, we need to be good defensively at that middle infield position because I was good defensively, and it validates my career to have a good fielder at that position. And now it looks like Rutledge will be moving over to shortstop, which is a bit tougher of a defensive position to play. I wonder if that's if all of that could combine to weigh him down somewhat in his return to the big leagues. You know, it could indeed, and certainly there are things that a really great middle infielder or a really great fielder like Walt Weiss does that are simply instinctual. Uh, and probably may be very difficult for a guy who's certainly an average fielder, which is where Rutledge probably falls, may be difficult for him to do. So we, there may still be those defensive concerns, even if he's not making errors, that, uh, that could, uh, could uh, factor into the picture. And a little later on in the show, Ron Chandler returns with his master notes, and he's going to be talking about Troy Tulowitzki and a trade that took place recently in one of the experts' leagues that Ron plays in. Uh, over in San Diego... Cameron Mabin, the outfielder, is back on the DL, and that looks like it means a big jump in playing time for Kyle Blanks, and yet another top prospect of years past. And Kyle Blanks has been getting some playing time of late and really making the most of it. You know, Kyle Blanks certainly has. Kyle Blanks really started getting more playing time when Yonder Alonso went on the DL, and now with the Mabin issue, it looks as though that playing time could uh, could really continue. And uh, Blanks has certainly played very, very well over the past month. Uh, in June, for example, 41 at-bats in June, three homers, nine RBIs, 341 BA. So the question becomes, is this a guy who's doing that kind of post-hype breakout that we talk about? I mean, Kyle Blanks was considered a great prospect, came up and, and acted like a good power prospect, but couldn't uh, couldn't manage to, to hit the ball enough to get on base. 157 BA in 2010, 229 BA in 2011. The question here is, is Blanks anything different than we've seen before? And if you take a look at what's behind those numbers, uh, a couple of things going on. He's making much better contact than he used to. I mean, in 2010, the guy only made a 50, had a 55% contact rate. He's up to 76% this year. Uh, that could make a huge difference. 
expected batting average 267 as opposed to 228 in 2011. So, yeah, we may be seeing a bit of a breakout from Kyle Blanks that could, in fact, be real. And uh, something that's interesting to me, too, is on-base percentage is way up from 2011. He was under 300. Now he's uh, toying with 360. And as a result, uh, if he gets playing time and gets on base, of course, he's not a stolen base threat, but he could score some runs. He In 123 at-bats, which is 50 less than he had in 2011, he already has the same amount of runs, uh, 21 to 20. And, you know, we often forget runs as a scoring stat. And, of course, if you play in certain it isn't a scoring stat but in most leagues it is and runs is kind of the uh, red-headed stepchild of scoring and and you can't really afford to overlook it no very definitely and you know you and you frequently as you say you do overlook it especially with a power hitter where you're looking in the home run and rbi category so uh, that could certainly make a difference and that on base percentage makes a huge difference of course uh in uh, getting runs scored the Chicago Cubs first baseman Anthony Rizzo has been a delight for people who gambled on him going into draft this year or in their auctions. He's a $20 player so far this year on BaseballHQ.com's 5x5 values. Uh, Anthony Rizzo's another one of these guys who was a prospect, kind of didn't measure up, it didn't, didn't hit his targets right away, and everybody got frustrated. And those who waited patiently and got in on the ground floor this year are being rewarded. And... Dan Becker, the batting buyer's guide at BaseballHQ.com, says that there's even some upside here with his somewhat suspect batting average. So far, Rizzo has been very, very good with 10 homers and, uh, and 39 RBIs, but batting average 243. But if you look behind that, expected batting average is 283. XBA a year ago was 280. He actually hit 285. So everything says that that's a real uh, a, a good target to expect from Anthony Rizzo. And uh, what's been happening is contact rate is down just a little bit. His hit rate is down 4% from a year ago, 31% in 2012, 27% this year. So maybe just a little bit of bad luck in terms of, uh, of hits falling. Uh, so certainly Anthony Rizzo, I think we would not be at all surprised to see a, a rise in batting average of 40 points or so between now and the end of the season. At the same time, his walk rate is up, which means his batting eye, his uh, walks to strikeouts ratio has risen a, a nice uh, rise over 2012 from 0.44, which is not bad last year, to 0.53 this year, which is uh, getting up there towards that 270-280 expected batting average territory. And here's something that's interesting. In just uh, 247 at-bats this year, he's got five stolen bases, which means if he continues to reach base at that same clip, he could be in the double-digit stolen bases as well. Not a bad thing for a power hitter. No, very definitely not. It's, it's always good to get some stolen bases out of your power guys. Over in Atlanta, Julio Terran is uh, having a kind of up-and-down year, but Stephen Nickrand, our starting pitching buyer's guide column at BaseballHQ.com, has a column he calls One Split Away, and he says that uh, Julio Terran is one split away from possibly being an ace. Yeah, and Stephen Nickrand may have hit exactly on the thing that's causing what's, uh, what's frustrating a lot of fantasy owners at this point, and that is that, uh, that one great start, you'll, you'll get out of Terran and you say, okay, the guy's ready. And then suddenly the next start, he gets gets hit pretty hard, and uh, and uh, earned runs go way up, and you you kind of go, what's going on here? And if and the difference, what may be going on here against right-handers, he's fantastic. Eight point two dominance, one point five control, forty-three percent ground ball rate, uh, really dominating right-handed hitters. But against left-handers, five point eight dom instead of eight point two, two point three control. He's walking more. Ground ball rate stays about the same. So. If he can find the same level of dominance against left-handers that he is against, and he's finding it against right-handers, this guy could really turn into something. 
He seems also to be straightening out that kind of up-and-down performance. Earlier in the year, his PQS logs, pure quality start logs at BaseballHQ.com, started with a 1, which is the worst, then a 5, which is the best, then a 1, then a 3. And it seems to be evening out. Uh, The last five starts are 4, 4, 4, 5, and 3, which is a pretty good string of decent uh, performance. So maybe he's figuring it out. He may indeed be figuring it out. I mean, we're looking at... uh, at, uh... A uh, string of, of starts that look considerably better than he did when he first uh, entered the rotation. Doug Dennis, the bullpen buyer's guide column at BaseballHQ.com, recently had a column called Saves at Risk, and one of the headliners in that list was Brandon League, the Los Angeles Dodger closer. Everybody thought from the start of the year that uh, Brandon League couldn't possibly hold the job. For a while, it looked like he might make liars out of all of them, Nick. He was doing okay. Lately, not so much, and just the other day it was announced that he's being replaced as the closer in Los Angeles, and no surprise here, the new closer is Kenley Jansen. You know, yeah, D- Doug uh, predicted on Wednesday that uh, that league would go and that Jansen would take over, and then that happened on Thursday. So Doug's predictions usually don't come true quite that quickly, but uh, Doug's a pretty perceptive uh, guy in terms of, uh, of how bullpens are operating and what's going on. And certainly the problem with Brandon League was he certainly couldn't he couldn't get strikeouts. 4.9 Dom. Uh, that's not not good enough for a closer uh, who's got to get some strikeouts, especially if he comes in with, with guys on base and uh, nobody out and has to get out of an inning. So uh, certainly Kenley Jansen can get the strikeouts. We're looking at a dom rate of 12.7. He almost never walks anyone, 1.6 control. Uh, so here's a guy that uh, ha- has all the things you look for in a closer. We're looking at a 201 BPV. I mean, we say that 100 is elite. For a closer, here's a guy that's over 200 right now. So uh, certainly he should be able to take the uh, take the closer job and run with it just as he did in the second half last. In fact, uh, the updated projections at BaseballHQ.com, they update them every day, of course. And now we're saying 23 saves for Kenley Jansen down the stretch from here on in. And uh, 23 saves could be worth uh, mid to high $20 roto value. If he's a free agent in your league or if your rules allow you to pick up guys that other teams already own, of course you want to be on this. But you know what? Given all of the uh, expectations coming into the year, I really doubt Kenley Jansen's available in most leagues. I think you're right. He's probably not, not sitting out there. All right, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a writer at BaseballHQ.com and our reporter on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Jock, a story building this week has been a potential change in closers in Seattle, and it added fuel late last week when Tom Wilhelmson was charged with five runs, blowing a save on Wednesday night. You covered the issue in your American League West Divisional Outlook column at BaseballHQ.com, and Doug Dennis touched on it in his Bullpen Buyer's Guide column. What's going on in the Seattle bullpen? I got to watch that game that Wilhelmson imploded against the Astros, and honestly, it, it, it looks worse than it really was because of all of the, the runs that the bullpen gave up and a bunch of intentional walks. But uh, Wilson, Wilhelmson's biggest problem is he has a straight fastball that he can't command, and uh, it uh, results in a lot of hard-hit balls. His curveball's terrific, but he doesn't miss a lot of bats, and uh, I, I agree with Doug. I don't think he's going to succeed in that closer role. You see, him in, you see it in his dominance. Um, he, he struck out uh, less than, than, than uh, oh, right around five hitters a game, I should say. And uh, that's not going to work as a closer. Um, I, I think Seattle is, is looking at Carter Capps as the heir apparent. 
but he's also growing and they seem to be taking him out in setup situations whenever they have a, a, a good lefty uh, righty matchup uh, um, available. And they're going to Charlie Furbush and Oliver Perez to face those left-handers. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that Wilhelmsen's uh, dominance rate has been not what you expect in a closer. The last couple of years it was. It was 8.3 in 2011, up to 9.9 in 2012, which is really good. And then this year, uh, right down to 6.6. And even worse, at the same time, his walk rate's been going up from 3.6 a couple of years ago to 4.7 this year, which means his command ratio of uh, 1.4 strikeouts for every walk is just not closer-worthy. So they're it looks like there's ample opportunity for somebody here to step forward, but it sounds like you're talking about a committee. I, I think you hit the nail on the head, PD, with uh, Wilhelmson. He's very volatile, and his historical BPIs shows show that he's volatile. He's not the kind of guy you want to look at as a long-term closer. And, yeah, until Caps gets his feet under under the ground or Stephen Pryor returns, and, and there's, an, there's another name who has shown lights-out stuff, I sense that Seattle may go to a committee for a little while. We should point out that Wilhelmson's expected ERA is 440, which is actually higher than his already bad 377. We would expect it to be up around that four-and-a-half run uh, ERA mark. But we, had, we also do have to make everybody aware. We're talking about very small samples here. So far this year, Wilhelmson's only thrown 28 and two-thirds innings, and you got to figure he's going to throw about the same the rest of the season, maybe a few more. But that, that means there's going to be a lot of variability, or at least that there could be a lot of variability in anybody's outcomes. Uh, the question is going to be, if he keeps blowing saves, then they're just not going to stick with him. Yeah, he's done a lot of that in the last couple of weeks, and uh, and like you said, uh, two weeks ago his ERA was uh, was under two. So there's a lot of variability in small sample sizes. Yeah, there is, and it's mostly ERA that gets affected. I think Jock. I was looking at the numbers. He he came into that game against Houston with a 2.22 ERA and an 0.95 WHIP, which is excellent. After the game, his WHIP went up to 112, but he only needs five clean innings to get back on that 0.95 level. So it's not that bad. But his earned run average, he's gonna he's gonna need 20 scoreless innings to get his ERA back down to 222, which is what it was before the game started. So that's a lot of scoreless innings. Yeah, that's it's, it's pretty much the way it is with relief pitchers. Staying in the American League West, Jock, another story you've been on top of for a while is the rotation turmoil at the Texas Rangers, and that seems to be getting worse. What's going on? Yeah, I think this is one of the stories that uh, that nobody's covering that they should be because it's it's building up steam. The Rangers have tried to get by at the bottom of their rotation with uh, Justin Grimm and Nick Tepish, two two rookies who have a lot of ability but a lot of inexperience, and now it's starting to show up. Uh, neither of these guys have gone very long in their recent four starts. Um, they're starting to put a lot of pressure on the bullpen. And now you've got Alex Alexei Agondo on the DL again, and they're wondering whether he's even going to start when he comes back. It's his second DL stint in the short run. Um, Colby Lewis has has uh, had problems with his velocity and his rehab. He was shut down for about two weeks. Nobody knows how he's going to look um, um, when he returns. So the potential solutions right now, at least in the short run in Texas, are Josh Lindblom and, and, and Martin Perez. And uh, they're they're unproven and untested. Uh, we're going to have to see how this plays out for Houston, for Texas. But they're they're putting a lot of pressure on the bullpen right now because they're not going longer than five or six innings. We talked earlier on Baseball HQ Radio, maybe just last week or the week before, about the uh, possibility that when 
Ian Kinsler comes back, there's going to be a bit of a crowd in the middle infield. How about a trade? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, we're heading into prime trade season, and i got to believe that the Ranger front office are, are burning up the, the telephone lines to see what's available on the pitching market because what they have now, particularly if it really burns out the bullpen in the summer, isn't going to work real well for them come October. Moving over to the American League Central, Ray Murphy's speculator column looked at Wade Davis of Kansas City and his current struggles, but also that he's starting to pick up some more strikeouts, which at the very least should keep him interesting. What do you think of uh, of Wade Davis in Kansas City? Yeah, Ray's column was focusing on pitchers who issue a lot of walks and, and a lot of strikeouts as well. Um, and Wade Davis, as, as Ray noted, um, actually has his strikeout rate up around nine with his last five starts. He's still giving up the walks. You know, he's a guy who, as we saw last year in the second half, uh, was terrific out of the pen. Um, he, he's got great stuff. He hasn't translated um, the bottom line to the rotation yet, but his strikeouts are up. If, if he can just control his walks a little bit more and get his home run fly ball rate to subside, he could, he could be a pretty good uh, second-half flyer in the rotation. I'll also be asking Joe Sheehan about Wade Davis later in our feature interview segment when I do Facts and Flukes. Uh, Staying in the American League Central, and for that matter, staying with Kansas City, Bob Berger's Central Division Outlook column noted that Jared Dyson is going to be back from the DL any day now, and that could spell uh, not such good news for Jeff Francoeur. I've been a fan of Dyson's for a long time, even back when he was considered a reserve. Um, I noted that he'd he'd been making subtle improvements in his contact and in his patience, and he always had the great speed. He just needed an opportunity. But Francoeur right now is having a historically bad uh, season. He's, he's, ob- he's been volatile his whole career, and he's often struggled against right-handed pitching. But this year he's hitting 191 against righties, over 115 at-bats, and he's doing nothing to make up for it against lefties. He's got zero home runs and, and hitting only 255 and 51 at-bats against left-handers. Uh, Dyson has speed to burn. He only had 41 at-bats before he got put on the DL. Um, I don't know if... Um, if what Kansas City's plan plans are with Frank Coor, but I got to believe that when Dyson comes back, as, if he can run, if he can use his legs, he's going to be inserted back into that Royal lineup. Yeah, the one thing Frank Coor brings to the uh, Royals is uh, really good right field defense, especially his throwing arm. But that's kind of a, a mixed bag as a blessing because everybody knows he can throw, so very few teams will run on him. I, I was looking at Jeff Frank Coor's stats, and are you ready for this? His OPS this year is five sixty six. And 566 for a, for a corner outfield position is almost ludicrously bad. Yeah, and the Royals have been struggling offensively lately, so he's, he really hasn't been worth much to them. As little as two years ago, he was up around 805, so I don't know what's going on with Jeff Francoeur, but Jared Dyson might certainly be worth a bit if you're looking, f- especially if you're looking for some speed coming up from the uh, DL. Finally, uh, Jock over in the American League East. Finally, Jock over in the American League East. Dave Adler wrote in his Facts and Flukes column that Nate McClough looks like a good batting average stolen base source for the rest of 2013. I talked about uh, Nate McClough with Ron Chandler last week. What do you think? Well, the only thing that gives me real pause with uh, Nate McClough is the volatility he's shown over his MLB career. That said, as I was reading Dave's piece, he points out real two real interesting things. and One is that McClough's consistency um, has been a double-digit walk rate. He's done this throughout his career, he's going to get on base. 
And the second one is that his uh, stolen base opportunity percentage is higher than it's ever been. Now, McClouth, is, he's, he's stolen 22 out of 24 bases. So if he keeps running like this, they're going to let him, they're gonna let him uh, uh, continue to try to steal bases. Um, the one concern I have about the batting average is McClough's contact uh, rate and his line drive rate. Both of them are higher historically than ever than anything he's done before. I have a feeling it's going to drop a little, but uh, again, if, if he can, if he, if it drops from the high 280s into the 270s, if he can keep it above water, I think the stolen bases are going to be worth it. I have a personal theory why Nate McClough is playing so well, and it is that I drafted him last year and not this year in my Tout Wars Mixed League team. Jock, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again next week. Okay, PD. Talk to you then. Jock Thompson, the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, covers the three Southern California teams for the site, writes other columns as well. Now it's time for our regular conversation with Todd Zola. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back with you, Patrick. You're in Chicago, uh, but not for the Stanley Cup Finals. I don't think uh, you're attending the Fantasy Sports Trade Association's Summer Conference. Uh, How's it been going so far? Well, uh, I'm not going to say I didn't watch the hockey game last night. I'm, I've got playoff fever coming from uh, the Boston area. But the, uh, the conference is going well. It's a, it's a great little event. Uh, we went to a game at Wrigley yesterday, which the uh, winter conferences are in Las Vegas, and I'm much more comfortable in, in the bleachers in Wrigley than I am at a, at a craps table in, table in Vegas. So that was kind of nice. You also participated, I believe, in uh, the FSTA NFL draft, a pretty early thing, I guess. But how did you do? We think we did okay. They, uh, you know, as, as as most people know, football is a little more popular than baseball, so they actually had two drafts. So I was in the B League. We call it the Beleaguered League, and uh, got, it's like soccer. We got to win our way into the A League to get broadcast on the radio next year. So it was fun. I mean, it, the prep after eighth round or so, it seemed like people were making up names. <laughs> but then I've been accused of making up baseball names when I'm in some deep baseball drafts. So. I was the other guy this time. I will say, football, you know, it's, it's fun. I'm not going to compare it to baseball. Uh, we enjoyed doing it, you know, in, in its own right. And it was kind of nice to uh, to get to compete and, and show that, that a couple baseball guys know a little about football, too. When you said that, I had a I had a vision that, that it would be fun to just, really, with great confidence, say, I'll take uh, Frank Van Dalsen. And just and then just sit down with your head down and write his name down on your piece of paper. Everybody would be looking around going, who, what? Um, it was kind of funny. I mean, jokes aside, I sometimes wonder, you know, with football, I'm not nearly as invested into the players and the research and, and all that sort of stuff. It's a much more comfortable draft. You know, I don't, I don't want to say I'm okay if I screw up, but what it is, the mindset is, is a little bit different. I, I kind of wonder sometimes if I need to remember that when I'm at the baseball draft table, that, you know, even though it's a completely different animal, you know, it's okay, it's okay to mess up. It's okay to take a chance. It's okay to be wrong. Uh, you don't have to be right every time. And that, in the football, that's all I feel. It's almost like, well, I'm not expected to do well, therefore it's okay if I screw up. Sometimes I wonder if I need to carry that mentality over to baseball. Yeah, excellent observation. Uh, I know the event that uh, you were looking forward to, and I'm really looking forward to hearing what yeah, you found out there was a session on the daily fantasy games that are really gathering a lot of momentum. Just in general, what were people saying in the session about these daily fantasy games? I mean, I do a little, I dabble in, and I'm doing a little writing for some some, some daily strategy. So I was very much interested, and I don't want to say it was a loaded conference or panel because there were a lot of providers on the panel. So of course they're going to be saying good things. 
but I think it's a, it's a positive vibe. Uh, there's some there is some apprehension, but I, I think people are have accepted it into the industry as being part of it, and and in an industry where you know, you need to you need to keep a step ahead. Not, it, I think people are being smart by recognizing it and and, and partnering with some of these people, be it on content or or, or news or, or that sort of thing. And uh, I, I think to, to the vibe I got was baseball may be a little more accepted of it than, than football. Football, I think, feels a little bit, and this is just me, I have no, no clue or whatever. I mean, I, I have no other than anecdotal talking to people. I think the football people feel just a little bit more threatened, which is kind of, which is bizarre because football is just huge. Um, but, or it just might be the, the nature. I think football industry is a little more competitive than the baseball industry. So I think it's the nature of the baseball folks to, to accept you into the into it more because we realize we all need to benefit together and to grow together and we still need to catch up to football. But, uh, you know, there is some apprehension because there's definitely some, uh, you know, issues related to it. But overall, I, I think it's here to stay. Of course, whether it's here to say uh, in a lot of ways is going to depend on how the various governmental authorities look at it because uh, we've talked about this in the past uh, on the show with Ron Chandler and I've talked about it with you off the air and just in conversation. As you get shorter and shorter timelines, the game starts to look a lot less like a game of skill and a lot more like a game of chance. And games of chance are something that many governments don't look at very fondly. And I noticed that there was a, a gaming enforcement prosecutor from New Jersey on the panel in your session, and FSTA legal counsel Glenn Colton also was on the panel. He's a very successful fantasy player in his own right. What were they? Did what did they say about the legality of the daily games and their obvious resemblance to gambling? That's the thing. There, the, the biggest message was disassociate yourself from gambling. As a matter of fact, uh, you know how Twitter is nowadays. It's so, so real time. Someone that was sort of covering or tweeting about the, the, the conference actually used the word uh, wagering in their tweet. And some people, oh, no, no, <laughs> you, got, you can't do that. You, you, you can't, you, we have to let people know that it's not wagering, that it is a game of skill and that sort of thing. And that's what they're running up against. The gentleman from New Jersey was here primarily because, uh, as most people know, sports betting is now legal in New Jersey with Atlantic City and such. So they were curious about the relationship that went on there. If people don't know, Glenn is just a pioneer in the industry. He, he along with Charlie Wiegert, were instrumental in the, in the MLB lawsuit several years back. Why, and, and it's why a lot of us can continue to do what we're doing uh, as far as that goes. So his expertise in the whole gambling and, 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 and lawsuits and sort of thing, it comes in, in, in very much in handy. And his main message was just the saying is, it's, we know that it's okay. We know that it's legal. Let's make sure everybody else is the same and, and be very careful what, how you talk about it, how you advertise it, how you, how you frame it, and how you approach it to make sure that we don't draw attention to it and all that sort of thing. And, you know, as he pointed out, you know, in our little world it's huge, but, you know, to with the amount of money being exchanged in general, it's not that huge. So let's not do anything to draw attention to it. Well, that puts you on the double-edged sword, though, doesn't it? You want to advertise it so you get more people involved, but you don't want to draw attention to yourself at the same time. Seems like a bit of a juggling act. Well, that's the thing. You, you, you want to, how, how you advertise it, you, you don't want to use you know wagering or, or betting or have any sort of hint at all that it's, that it's anything more than 
how well you know, you know, baseball or football, as it were. Uh, and, and, it, and it sort of makes sense. And it was almost as a, as a warning to a lot of the, the newer startups that, that may just see see an opening. You know, here's a way to make money. I like football. I like baseball. And it's it, it, much of a word of, word of warning to those as it is anybody else. And they brought up some interesting points, too, about a lot of the – it's not just is it a game of skill versus chance, but are there ways to game the system to turn it into – betting if one if, if some of these sites have a literally a head-to-head i i can play you after you know when we're done i can arrange to you can go to one of these sites and i can play you heads up one-on-one you know tonight in the baseball is there a way to you know if i take all of one team and you take all of another team are we in effect betting on the game that sort of thing and so that, that one of the things we need to do is design a game such that it's not based on the outcome of the game at all uh, I've always been curious. That's always been one of the rules. But yet, wins is a category in roto. Maybe we shouldn't say that now. People, in. oh no! But <laughs> I've always thought there was a little bit of a, uh, of a problem there because football used to have a category. You used to get points if you if you would draft a coach, and if the coach won the game, you would get fantasy points. But football learned early on that they better take that out because that's based on the outcome of the game, and people may not like that. There are ways that you can gamble, especially on football that have nothing to do with the outcome of the game and that are still looked at as gambling. There are all kinds of prop bets about, you know, who's going to get the first touchdown, who's going to who's going to have the first interception, you know, will these various small things happen and you can put, you know, $10 plus the vig on a, on one of those bets and it's it's a non-game outcome thing, but it's still a bet and it's still gambling. It's not a skill thing per se. And I'm wondering, did you get any inkling of a sense that at some point governments are going to look at this and go, you know, you can call it a game of skill, but when you're talking about a single night's activities, it's not a skill. It's just, uh, it's just, it's just luck. I think. Well, I think there's still, you know, you take the guy off the street. I mean, we've talked about that before. There's still some skill involved, but you you could get lucky. Um, you know, I don't. I'm not a golfer. I mean. You know, a, a guy who golfs regularly has a better chance of getting a hole-in-one than I do, but if I get up there and swing a club, who knows? It could go in. Uh, it's sort of the same sort of thing. You could come in and the old thing about, you know, a monkey typed enough letters, to, you know, a, a Shakespearean sonnet would come out. Um, you know, if you picked enough players arbitrarily, I guess you could win that night. But, you know, if I'm on a heads-up and I know that I'm against a monkey and I'm against you, I'd, uh, I'd feel much better if I was playing against a monkey. No, don't be so don't be so confident. Uh, um, <laughs> some of those monkeys, they really know their stuff. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm just not Marcel. I just don't want to go against Marcel. <laughs> that's right. Marcel does a very good job of picking those uh, picking those results. As a matter of fact, uh, what else is going on? I know you have uh, a couple of uh, notable people being inducted into the Hall of Fame tonight. That's going to be a great event. Yeah, actually, someone who uh, who, who who Ron has been pushing for for a number of years. Um, uh, John Hunt, you know, one of the big pioneers in the industry, is going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame tonight, uh, USA Today, back in the day, Baseball Weekly. Who There's a lot of us, including myself, who might not be in the industry if it wasn't for a mention, a blurb, a reference, just having the word Masters Ball, you know, in a one-line, hey, there's this fledgling site out there, check it out. We, the, the next day, our hits just went through the roof. Uh, you know, it, it's just it's a great platform. You know, you're, you're Doug Dennis, you know, formerly was, was with John and wrote some of the notes uh, for a while. 
uh, you know, he's been great for the for the industry. Uh, he's moved on, but I'm glad that we haven't forgotten him. Steve Gardner from USA Today, you you talked to a lot on the on the podcast on, the, on HQ Radio, is going to be inducting him, and he sort of picked up the mantle over at Gannett, over at HQ, uh, over at our USA Today, running labor and, and and keeping the tradition alive. So I think that's great. And then as we we, we mentioned Glenn before, Glenn Colton. I think long overdue is going to be inducted. You know, because you met, not only is he a, a lawyer, he is one of the better players in the industry. He and his buddy Rick Wolf have won several. Uh, I, here goes a don't like this word expert championships, but it's out there uh, in both football and baseball. So Glenn is one of those unique people that uh, he could be inducted just by what he's done to save to help save the industry. But it's also great that he's a content provider and one of the best players out there. All right, uh, Todd, enjoy that uh, ceremony with uh, those uh, fine inductees. There are some others as well, and uh, and we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Talk about fantasy baseball. Looking forward to it, Patrick. Thanks. That's Todd Zola. We talk with Todd every week here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Newsletter is next. Stay with us. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Ernie Shore was the perfect one When Babe Ruth, he got the thump For a price they sent him down to old New York Things went bad till Cronin came. 46, they won again. The Sox had Tex and Pesky team with Bobby Dork. I'm talking baseball. West Farrell and Doc Kramer. Boston baseball. Scientists, the Hall of Famers. Dominic Parnell and Jimmy Fox. The Thumper just waiting in the box. Talking baseball. Baseball and the Sox. There were triple crowns and MVPs. He hit the ball with grace and ease. Teddy was as splendid as they come. Then Yastrzemski got the call. In 67, he did it all. And the pennant was flying high before his work was done. I'm talking baseball. Jackie Jensen, Reggie Pearsall, Boston baseball. Ronald Rico and Don Schwal. Tony C, the monster, Ike the Lock. Lon Borg and the strange glove of the dock. We're talking baseball, baseball and the socks. Talking baseball in New England. Aganis and Smokey Joe. Stevens three hits in one inning. Carlton Fisk and Freddie Lynn. Please come to Boston in the spring. It's a beautiful thing. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's a pleasure now to be joined by Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Newsletter, also a regular writer at Sports Illustrated and SI.com, a podcaster in his own right with a really terrific podcast with Randy Giazzerli, and he's a guest on radio shows all over the country. Joe, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good talking to you again, Patrick. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, thanks. Uh, it's an interesting baseball season, which always makes it more fun. And before we start talking about that, I always like to catch up with how our guests are doing in their own fantasy leagues. I know you got back into Tout Wars American League. Are you playing in any others, and uh, how are all your teams doing? I'm in three leagues this year. Uh, you mentioned Tout AL. I'm middle of the pack there, but well out of first place, as Larry Schechter is schooling us all again. 
just uh, I, I have part of the problem is having David Price, so that hasn't worked out particularly well. Eric Hosmer, I got a lot of the big disappointments, but I feel like the bottom of the roster is playing well. So if the top of the roster just starts performing, I might be able to make a run. In a uh, local 12-team mixed league that's run by Yahoo, uh, middle of the pack there, again, far out of first place. A lot of the same problems, Price, Dickey, Hosmer. You know how it is, Patrick. You tend to end up with the same guy. So if you hit in a year, you have a big year, and if you miss on them, you, know, you miss big. So you know, I put a lot of uh, in uh, Price and Hosmer this year, some other guys, and it hasn't really worked out. And then uh, in a score sheet league that I just I did a tremendous job with the pitching staff, which is made up for the fact that I've got every bad, disappointing hitter in the National League: Hayward, the wrong Upton, Starling Castro, Danny Espinosa. So pitching heavy, but you know it's fun to be back. I kind of didn't play fantasy last year, and uh, I'm really enjoying being back into it and kind of having that player focus that I didn't really have last year. I share your pain on David Price. I also drafted Cole Hamels in my Tout Wars Mixed League. And, yeah, Price and Hamels for over $50 combined uh, is pretty much uh, combined, all right. It's combined to sink my team. Uh, you mentioned you didn't play last year, and I wondered about that. Your interests in baseball and baseball journalism obviously extend far beyond fantasy baseball. When you write your uh, newsletter articles, they sometimes touch on fantasy, but most often are more interested in the larger world of baseball. It's easy to see how fantasy players reading general baseball journalism like yours, that can help with their fantasy team management. But how do you think your involvement in fantasy helps you be that general baseball journalist? I find that it, I, I'm more aware of rosters and player usage and roles and uh, certainly the transactions and things that teams are doing like on the back end of their roster. I, there's no question in my mind that I'm a better fan and analyst when I'm playing fantasy. It just it forces you to have a greater uh, awareness. Now, I think you can get a little caught up um, get a little tunnel visioned about focusing on your players, but it's no different than what you do as an analyst, kind of getting tunnel visioned on players or teams that you've gone deep on. For the sake of argument, I made a, a, what people consider to be a bold prediction this year about the San Diego Padres. And because of that, I find myself watching more Padres baseball because, you know, if they do well, it frankly will reflect well on me. And uh, if they do poorly, I'm going to look like an idiot, not for the first time. <laughs> yeah. So I think with fantasy, though, it really does kind of get you to look into what teams are doing, how players are performing, and get you to drill down. Whereas the last year when I didn't play fantasy, I spent a lot more time kind of looking at the league from a 10,000-foot perspective. It's been a few years now since you very bravely started your newsletter on the premise that fans would pay to have regular quality baseball analysis and writing. Uh, how's the experiment going? I'm reasonably happy with it. Um, I have uh, we have 1160 odd subscribers at this point, which is uh, about 16% more than we had uh, last year. Last year, we were a little over 1,000. We are a little over 1,000 in 2011 as well. So the jump this year is nice to see. Uh, renewal rate is great. When people, people who get the newsletter keep getting the newsletter, I'm very proud of the fact that close to four out of five people who subscribed last year are subscribers this year. And the real issue is going out and finding those next subscribers. So working on some things, started a, a friends and family thing where people can buy, subscribe, or buy subscriptions for their friends, for their family, for a discounted rate. And the idea is just to try to get it in front of as many eyeballs as possible because it seems that once people start getting the product, they like the product, which you know I, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that people who buy it once tend to keep buying it. So hopefully just put it in front of more people, get more eyeballs, and uh, keep it going for 2014 and beyond. 
What do you think of the model itself? Uh, you, you were very uh, upfront when you started the newsletter about your belief that people would pay for quality content. And as you said, it's working well for you. And they do stay with you once they find you. But do you think in the larger sense that the idea of high-quality product will run up against this, I think, flawed paradigm that says everybody believes information should be free and therefore you can't get anybody to pay for it? I'm less concerned about the everybody believes information can be free mindset because that's simply going to change generationally. People are going to become more used to the idea of paying for things online. I guess my greater concern is just the idea that, you know, what we get from the mainstream media is just so bad in so many cases. I mean, there are isolated, you know, guys out there, guys like Brian Kenny, um, you know, places like Sports on Earth, they're really trying to do high quality content, but so much of what we get from the broad what we get from the broadcast networks just doesn't really measure up. And I people just don't know their alternatives. They just say, Well, you know, Skip Bayless is on my television, that must be who I watch and you know ex-baseball players are the best people to get information from. And it's you really got to teach people that there are all these alternatives out there. And that's going to be the hardest part. I Do I think do I still think people will pay money for quality content? Well, I, I've got to because, and, and not for nothing, I've done this. Uh, I don't want to say I, that, that's a bad way to put it. Um, you know, between start getting being involved with the Starter Perspectives with Gary Huckabay, Clay Davenport, Christina Carl, Randy Gisarelli, we built that book up. Um, in 2002, I started the newsletter, which was you know, after Rotowire and Ron, really one of the first you know, pay things out there. And then when the newsletter did well, Perspective said, well, let's go pay. So we were part of that. So I've been part of a number of projects that have, said, that have basically said people will pay for quality content and been proven right. So um, I, I definitely believe that it's out there. And one of the things is that when you're doing it this way, when you're directly going to the readership, when you don't have overhead and a staff and all this other stuff, you know, your margins are, are fairly, that margin, you're, you're, you can be a success with a fairly low level of penetration. Um, 1,160 people, you know, I'm not saying I can live on that, but that's not a bad, that, that's fairly successful. If ESPN had 1,160 viewers of the website, they'd be dead in the water. So, you know, there, there are economies of scale that in, individuals can work with that aren't going to really work for large companies. It's a very long-winded answer that basically says, uh, I'm, I'm happy with my success. I do see other entities out there doing that. You know, at the, at the, the high end, you've got somebody like Louis C.K., Putting out a comedy video for five bucks on his website, going to, cutting out all the middlemen. You know, Prince tried to do it years ago. Pearl Jam tried to do it with, with tickets. Yes. I think there are definitely individuals out there that want to go directly to the public, and kind of you know do an end around the large entities that kind of stand in the way between you know writers and you know whatever other create content creators, if you will, and content consumers. I think long term, that's the lesson here. Content creators can access their audience directly. I think you're right, and uh, also you control the, the tools of production to get a little bit Marxist. I remember it was quite a story when Cheryl Crow announced that uh, she was going to just put a Pro Tools computer-based mixing system in her barn where she lived or something like that and just said, I don't need the record company to produce a record. I can do it myself. And it's a logical next step to say, I don't need the record company to sell this thing because if I tour or if I can somehow raise awareness of it, they'll pay. And even if they only pay a dollar a song or whatever, you sell half a million songs, you're doing all right. Exactly. I, I mean, I don't know if half a million does Cheryl Crow any good. Half a million songs. You know, if I could sell the news, I've said it before. If I could sell the news, if I knew I was going to sell 100,000 newsletters, I probably wouldn't price it at twenty twenty four ninety five. I'd probably price it at, you know, fourteen ninety five. I'm not trying to make, you know, I'm not trying to break the bank here. I just, I 
one of the issues in pricing is that I have to be sure because I'm making the commitment at the start of the year to bring in a certain a certain minimum. I have to guarantee that I'm not going to be writing 300,000 words for you know eight thousand dollars. So the pricing kind of builds that in, and you kind of pricing is guesswork. I mean, I know there's a lot of smart people out there, but pricing is largely guesswork. So, you know, I, I got to say, I'm, 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 I think the the low barriers to entry. You know, we've seen people pop up with podcasts and blogs. I mean, if you have content and you want to get it out there, you can absolutely do it in a way that you couldn't do 20 to 25 years ago. You think about the the nascent ebook industry, where people you, know, you can publish a book now. What's the Amazon? Amazon singles. You, know, you sure, yeah. come up with a 10,000-word product, you sell it, sell it for $2.99. You can access the market now. And if you have good content, I think it will be found. And, you know, there, there are alternatives to just flipping to 206 and being told that Tim Tebow is the biggest story of the day. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, you mentioned that Amazon singles. I read a story the other day about that very topic and how publishers are starting to get really worried. And the example they used, I can't remember the man's name. He's a science fiction writer. And he kind of out of desperation put his work out there as uh, because he couldn't get he couldn't get in the door at the publisher. So he put a piece of work on Amazon singles and he sold like two or three million dollars worth and of course as soon as that happened all the publishers came running and he said i don't see why i need you people anymore if the content is there i think you're right i think people will pay for it andrew sullivan you know the uh, blogger and that's journalist. the other example i wanted to come up with he went independent uh, i want to say this was last year he went out and raised used uh was it uh quickstarter or one of those Kickstarter, not Quickstarter, Kickstarter, um, and you know, launched this website. Now he's got a staff, and it's a different model in that there's a lot more people involved. But you know, all things considered, it's that same principle where I don't need the larger organization. I can simply collect money from people, you know, pay my various bloggers, and go from there. Now, one of the issue, one of the differences between between that model and mine is that. There are a number of staffers there. In other words, their volume is an issue. Like one of the things that I can't compete with, you know, for, with, with HQ or Rotowire or, or Prospectus is on volume. When I'm asking for your money and selling you my product, there's no way you're going to get six or seven things from me. I don't run it like, you know, a, a day. You know, I'm not running it like a block. And I'm not even writing, you know, you know, five, six times a week. It's I'm writing three to five times a week, and I'm trying to make sure that those three to five things are, are worth your reading. So, you know, volume is something that larger organizations are always going to be able to to win on. And what you're trying to do is beat the larger organizations on everything but volume. But on the other hand, like you said, in most cases, larger volume is mostly volumes of crap. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan, the author of the Joe Sheehan Newsletter. The best 25 bucks you're going to spend if you like baseball, in my and opinion. 1995 uh, now, 1995 for the rest of the year. All right, even better. <laughs> Let's talk about a few of the topics you've covered recently in the newsletter, and I'm really curious about your take on uh, biogenesis. You had some fairly sharp criticism of the Major League Baseball investigation, they're calling it, into biogenesis and PEDs again, because you said this is not about PEDs, not about baseball cheating, it's all about power. How so? Well, you go back a decade, and, and basically PEDs has is, is flipped 30 years of progress uh, uh, the MLBPA against you know baseball's management. This was really the first time of the last ten years that MLB management ownership has been able to 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 win public relations battles and, and also win collective bargaining agreement negotiations with the MLBPA. And it just you know they kind of they they took all the for lack of a better word the profits. Nobody cared where the cash registers were ringing in ninety seven to ninety eight ninety nine and two thousand. And it wasn't until the 2002 CBA, 
you know, in the on the heels of Barry Bonds hitting, you know, 2000, uh, 73 homers in 2001 and a lot of this stuff starting to, to, to leak into the media, that MLB kind of started raising this issue. And then they were helped along by Congress. And what MLB discovered accidentally was that this issue gave them a lot of traction. They were able to position players as these, you know, dirty, cheating baseball players. And, you know, MLB is trying to keep their game clean. And this extended through the Mitchell Report, which tended to whitewash the knowledge, the uh, the role of organizations in the, the quote-unquote steroid era and put all the focus on the players. And, you know, you think about the penalty phases and you think about the punishments. Everything has been so player-focused. With biogenesis, you have MLB raising this issue up again. And, you know, in contrast to the NFL, which, okay, a guy pees in a cup, he gets test positive, they issue a press release, and, and we move on. MLB and Bud Selig are raising this issue because it helps them. You know, for all this notion of, you know, well, they don't care what damage it does to the game, it doesn't do any damage to the game. MLB is printing money hand over fist, just like they were printing money hand over fist when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were hitting homers, just like they were printing money hand over fist when Barry Bonds was hitting home runs. You know, the steroid issue matters when people get asked, do you care about steroids? And they all, of course I care about steroids. And then they go to the game, and they cheer Marlon Bird's game-winning single, or, or, or they get excited when, uh, when Chucho Reese has a big hit. Or, you know, nobody really cares about this stuff. And when I say care, I mean cares enough to act about it. And what MLB has learned is that if they continue to keep this issue in, in, in full view, they can maintain this leverage. And if you look at the last decade of baseball, they've really turned around labor relations. Whereas, you know, for 30 years, you know, the MLBPA basically got, you know, a lot of wins. They won every single CBA negotiation. MLB has won the last three. And there's no question in my mind that they've won it in part because players are now seen as kind of this group of cheating bad guys, which is because MLB has made them look like cheating bad guys. So biogenesis isn't about drugs, steroids, baseball, anything like that. Biogenesis is about the power dynamics between MLB owners and MLB players. You mentioned a moment ago that uh, the Mitchell report in particular whitewashed or turned a blind eye towards the uh, activities of management. Uh, I think there was a few mentions of uh, the San Francisco Giants clearly knew what was going on with bonds. And uh, there was, I believe, in the Mitchell Report, a reference to uh, Eric Gagne and some emails that got tossed back and forth. We know he's using, but we'll sign him anyway type of thing. I believe the Red Sox were involved with that. And nothing came of it. It was Eric Gagne who was the villain, not the people who were saying, yeah, we know he uses, but we, it makes him good, so we want him. <laughs> you know, so is that what you meant in your article when you said that using illegal drugs and shutting up about it was perfectly fine in baseball until about six minutes ago? It was actually more a reference to amphetamines as much as anything else. Amphetamines, which, frankly, there's a greater... If you want to make a connection between performance and, 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 and drugs, I can make a stronger case for amphetamines than I can for steroids. Uh, and you know, people, players have been using amphetamines since the 50s and 60s. And, you know, frankly, players were using steroids to the extent that they were. And, you know, it was not no really... You know, this, this idea that, like, there were this large, silent majority of players that hated it is really not backed up by the evidence. We've got 40 to 50 years that says, you know, players were using illegal drugs and nobody really cared. The front offices didn't care. You know, a lot of the times the, the trainers were making the amphetamines available, not necessarily the, the harder stuff. The organizations didn't really care. I mean, illegal drug use has been a part of the game for 50 years, and we just decided about 10 years ago that we were going to start worrying about, quote-unquote, the children and, 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 and make this a big deal. And like I say, I think left to their own devices... 
it, this this would have continued to be a big deal. And the idea that Congress had any standing at all to step in here is, is ludicrous. First of all, Congress was completely ill-informed when they had that hearing. They didn't understand the issues. They kind of bought into the whole narrative of, oh, my God, home run records are being broken. And there were a thousand other reasons. There was no learned testimony about you know the reasons for the offensive explosion. You had you know baseball players talking about you know things they barely understood. So you know the, the congressional hearings were a joke, but MLB was able to leverage the congressional hearings into a testing program. You know the players signed on to an anonymous testing program. Oops, the feds got involved, and now it's not so anonymous anymore. I mean, it's just it's the only reason we're here today is because MLB was able to leverage this issue. This, this, to to help their standing, to basically change the relationship between MLB owners and MLB players. Nothing else had worked from the dawn of the free agency era. Nothing else had worked. Painting the players as greedy, talking about competitive balance, trying to fold franchises, which is what Sealy tried to do in 2002. Nothing had worked until they discovered this issue. And this issue has changed America's view of baseball players. But like you said, the the people don't care about it in terms of buying tickets or not buying tickets. I wonder why the players don't just look, just say, we don't care about this. I wonder if this would have happened if Don Fair was still in charge. Well, this, I, maybe it's not as bad as the NFLPA under, under Gene Upshaw, but the MLBPA is as close to a house union as it's been since before they hired Marvin Miller. I mean, they've just bent on the last three uh, CBAs. Particularly this last one, um, and they've allowed, like I say, what, and this is what I'm saying. While all of this has been going on over the last ten years, look at what MLB has done. MLB just keeps, you know, getting public entities to cough over hundreds of millions of dollars to buy to, to build stadiums. They've restructured revenue sharing such that teams don't have to put a competitive team on the field to make profits. You got situations like, you know, the Dodgers in L.A., which frankly, you know, they sold it to a guy that had, had it not been for the divorce. Between the McCourts, let's let, let's come let's construct an alternate universe where the McCourts don't get divorced. Frank McCourt probably still owns that team and is still sucking all this money out of that team. It was the divorce that caused everything to come out. It wasn't that MLB found out that Frank McCourt was a bad owner. It was that the divorce caused us to learn that he was a bad owner. The situation in Miami. I mean, I don't want to bury Jim Crane. I think he bought a team where this had to be done. But you know, the situation in Houston is pretty bad. And right now, you have all of these teams just able to be profitable without putting money into their system. That's, MLB has been able to do that over the last 10 years because they've had the upper hand in the CBA negotiations because the players have had they had the, 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 the PED issue has caused them to be perceived as bad in, in the public eye, but also it's not the solid union that it was anymore. This has served to divide the union somewhat. I mean, there are players who, you know, I'm a psycho-libertarian. So I feel like you get my bodily fluids over my cold, dead body, or you have a warrant that is you know, probable cause. And I don't say that as a drug user. I say that as a psycho-libertarian. And the players are, I think, legitimately divided. I think there are players who just kind of feel like, well, you know, we'll give up our fluids, and there are players who don't feel that way. Um, and I think this has really served to, to, to carve up the union a little bit, and that's certainly helped in these negotiations. I don't think the players can sustain any kind of labor action over any issue at this point, because they're not – this is not the union of – of Mark Belanger, you know, to go, to go back the late Marvel, Mark Belanger to go back to the seventies and eighties. It's not the union of Marvin Marvin Miller. It's not the union of Don Fear. It's it's something entirely different. Clearly, I think you're right about that. The uh, the union 
appears weaker and the way you can always tell that a union is weak is because it doesn't win its negotiations and the proof is in the pudding. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Dav with Joe Sheehan. Joe, you mentioned Miami milking the revenue system and uh, putting a terrible team on the field. The Marlins' futility this year is legendary. You wrote about that in your newsletter and it was a real eye-opener. They're on a track to, to be historically bad. They look like a 4A team coming into the season anyway and then they lost Giancarlo Stanton on top of it. But I'm sure a fair number of people might be surprised by the offensive futility of the Chicago White Sox, a veteran team with some pretty good hitters in a hitter-friendly park. What the heck is going on on the south side? Uh, just a lot of things have gone wrong for them. Uh, yeah, they, they they really had one guy, and they've had a good week. They had a couple of uh, big games against the Blue Jays. But, you know, Alex Rios is the only guy hitting at an offensive level. Really, it's, you know, a couple of veterans have finally hit the wall, Adam Dunn, Paul Konerko. Um, they let AJ Przinsky go, replaced him with Tyler Flowers, who was a number of, one of a number of young players, uh, like Connor Gillespie, like you know, Gordon Beckham over the last few years, like uh, Diane Vicieto, who haven't developed offensively. And then you know they signed some role players, Alejandro DeHaza, Jeff Kepinger, who've kind of you know they've played reasonably well over the last few years, but have gone back to being role players. And essentially, just everything they've done has gone wrong. And you know, couple that with the fact that this farm system hasn't developed any hitters of note in a very long time, and you just don't have a very good baseball team. And I think it's funny how quickly it happened. I mean, this team was in first place with uh, 10 days to go last year. They had a chance to win that division, and now you look at them and you're like, not only are they bad now, I'm not sure there's a future here. It is a bad team at the major league level. Excuse me, I take that back. It's a bad offense at the major league level. It's a good pitching staff, but, I mean, obviously, you know, PV's injured now. I mean, Don Cooper just gets all these great performances out of these random guys, Axelrod, Quintana and uh, uh, Hector Santiago, but the pitching isn't enough to make up for a replacement level offense. I mean, they're on pace to be one of. The, I mean, as of the, they had two good games, but as of Monday morning, they were one of the worst offenses since the Korean War. I mean, it's just you don't realize how bad they are when you look and say they don't do anything right. They don't hit singles. They don't doubles. They don't homers. They don't walk. They don't steal base. Actually, they do. They steal uh, bases, but they don't steal them at a high percentage. Um, they're like thirty-four for forty-eight as a team. You know, they were last or next to last in every pretty much every stat of note. I mean, they just don't have any offensive skills. So, you know, it's a shame because they're wasting a really good pitching performance. Um, and the Tigers, with their bullpen issues, you know, they're a good team, but I think they can be caught. But I just, you know, this White Sox team would literally need to overhaul about three or four lineup spots to, to catch them. And precious little in the way of prospects or anything to accomplish that either. Uh, Joe, you wrote a new newsletter column on June the 7th that said baseball success in turning its draft into a useful hype machine like the NFL and NBA do uh, has been noteworthy, but then you advised your readers to forget about the draft anyway. What were you, th- what were you thinking there? Well, I was one of the guys who, you know, 10 years ago was saying MLB's got to really sell the draft and pump it up, and they've done a wonderful job with that. I mean, they first started telling that, you know, I want to say about five years ago. Uh, six years ago, maybe, because I know Kurt Schilling, against the first draft, Kurt Schilling was trying to throw a no-hitter. It was this really odd thing that was going on. Um, ESPN had it that year. They moved to MLB Network. They, they do a good job with the production to the extent that they can. There are just a couple of fundamental problems in that, you know, there's games going on. I mean, I'm a baseball analyst, and I'm going to get more out of watching the Rangers and Red Sox than I am out of watching the draft. Uh, you've got the issue of fans don't really have any connection to the players that are being drafted now because they don't really... We don't really follow college or high school baseball the way we do the other sports. And there's no connection going forward because these guys, you look, 
the entire league's gotten something like eight win, no, like one win above replacement out of the 2012 draft. They've gotten like 11 wins out of replacement out of the 2011 draft. You've got to go back to 2010 to find a draft that's having an impact on the 2013 season. So the guys who were drafted last week, you're going to start seeing them in 2015, and they're going to be relevant to 2016. So promotionally, from a marketing standpoint, I think it's great that MLB has done this kind of programming with the draft. I got no problems with it whatsoever. But if you're a fan, it was a one-day story, and you don't have to worry about it until 2016. Yeah, drafting some kid out of uh, Vera Cruz High School uh, is not quite the same thing as drafting uh, Robert Griffin, as far as the fans' interest goes. That's for sure. Uh, in another column, you actually advocated that they should just stop having the entry draft in Major League Baseball altogether. What was your thinking there? Yeah, I mentioned earlier the psycho libertarian thing. I think the draft is immoral. I think that we're, you know, lever- we're, all the draft does, the draft's initial purpose was to cap labor costs. You go back to 1965, and they just didn't want, they wanted to stop competing for amateur talent. The bonuses were getting out of control. They paid Rick Reichardt $200,000 and finally said, this is silly. So they all got together and said, we'll have a draft. And the draft had nothing to do with competitive balance. Whatever impact the draft has on competitive balance is a secondary, maybe even a tertiary effect. The idea is to stop competing for amateur talent. So we essentially have a $9 billion industry you know, run by 30 companies making their money off the backs of 1,500 uh, young people, be it you know, 20-year-olds coming out of college or teenagers, 17, 18-year-olds coming out of high school. And I just I find that to be immoral. I don't think we I, I don't think we would accept this in a lot of other industries. We accept it in sports because of this myth of competitive balance. But even if competitive balance is a goal and is one that 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 the draft helps, it still doesn't. You know, the Kansas City Royals, just to pick a small market team, have no right to be good based on you know taking away the negotiating rights of fifteen hundred amateurs. So no, I think the draft is immoral. I also don't think the, I think the competitive balance argument is is overstated. I think that we don't know what the actual result would be. There, people say, "Well, the Yankees were great back in the '40s," and they were. But you know, something times have changed, and a lot more people have a lot more access to information now. I think that if you had no draft, teams could choose where to put their resources in a, in a much greater way than they could now. A team like the Astros, with a thirty million dollar major league payroll, could put sixty million dollars into signing amateurs, and maybe you know a large market team would decide not to do that. Uh, I think they're, you know, team, the idea that players would sign with you know, the Yankees and Red Sox and Dodgers and Angels, I think that's overstated. I think players want to play. I think that it, you know, if you're Mark Appel, maybe you want to sign with a team that's more likely to get you to the majors quickly and have you pitching for a good team quickly. So, and I also think it comes into scouting. I mean, if you just, gave, if you just took the top five guys in every draft, yeah, I mean, some years you're going to have Strasburg, but you know, the next four guys, can you name the next four guys in that draft? Nobody can. I remember doing a story about it where I said I made that exact point. Uh, in Mike Trout's year, sure you could have drafted him, but there was four or five guys ahead of him that just weren't anything. Right, and what you're what you're going to find is that teams are going to be making expensive mistakes, and it's going to be a lot of big market teams are going to make expensive mistakes. I so- also wonder, don't you think that the the fact that in the part of the Major League Baseball talent acquisition process that is not governed by the draft is where you've seen a lot of small market teams do very well because they're good at managing. I'm thinking of, for instance, Oakland going out and signing Yoena Cespedes when he came on the market, or the Reds getting Aroldis Chapman when he came on the market. They made big dollar bets on these guys, and I think the A's also signed uh, Michael Inoa, and that didn't work out so well. Well, the Twins have Miguel Sano. 
another another excellent example. There's all kinds of these guys who come from outside the draft, and they don't all land in New York. They don't all land in Los Angeles. And by being good managers, this allows these teams to be competitive with more higher revenue teams that aren't so well managed. And I'll tell you something, Joe. I did a study one time of the NFL draft because it occurred to me that the Detroit Lions seemed to have a really t- high draft pick every year, and they were never any good. And I went and looked, and and it, I realized that having those high draft picks in the draft does not address competitive balance. In the NFL, in the NHL, in the NBA, and especially in Major League Baseball, a critical component is how good you are at managing a baseball team, and the Chicago Cubs are a big revenue team. They don't do so good. No, uh, player development matters, and that's not going to change in this. You know, selecting the right players matters. There are a lot of things that are going to go into People just have this idea that lots of money equals success, and frankly, we've got a ton of evidence that lots of money doesn't equal success. So, yeah, I, I think the draft is immoral. I, I think it absolutely should be eradicated. And at the very least, chop it down to a handful of rounds. I mean, to whatever extent you're going to make a, a moral defense of the NBA and NFL drafts, it's that they're nine rounds combined. MLB drafts. 40, and I keep saying 1,500, it's actually down to 40 rounds, so 1,200 guys. But you're still, that's 1,200 people, and you know, the other leagues are, are drafting a quarter of that. Uh, any defense you're going to make of the draft comes down to, we like it because it saves us money. And frankly, the players are, are, are to be blamed here, too. The players yep. in every league exceed to these draft terms, whether it's slotting, whether it's you know, the way MLB does it now with the draft caps, essentially because they think that if, they're, if they take money away from the amateurs, there'll be more money available for the professionals. And generally what happens is when they take money away from the amateurs, the owners just pocket it. So it's really bad negotiating as well, and this feeds into the, the earlier discussion about the, the house union that the MLBPA has become. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davo with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Newsletter. And, Joe, we've been asking all our expert guests uh, this year to tell us whether various storylines and player performances are facts or flukes. And this will be familiar to you. You've been a panelist on the Facts or Flukes panel at First Pitch Arizona. I've had the good fortune to emcee that panel with you in the past. You should be an ace at this. Uh, just a note to listeners, all the val- dollar valuations I use are Baseball HQ's 15-team mixed 5x5 five five values as of June the 12th. And, Joe, some overperforming hitters, Dominic Brown, really? You know, I, it's interesting because Dominic Brown was a guy who I really liked. And when he lost his job two years ago, they went out and traded for Raul Abanez. There's kind of an argument that, you know, he's a league average hitter. He's a league average hitter the day he lost his job. And he basically got lost for two years. He had the injury in spring training last year. He didn't hit. The player he is right now is completely different from the player he was two years ago. He's yanking everything up. I mean, he's not nearly the disciplined hitter that he was. But I wonder if some of this isn't an adaptation to, you know, if I don't hit, I mean, literally hit, I'm going to lose my job. Now, he's hitting three out of every ten fly balls he hits goes for a home run, and you know that that doesn't sustain. That's that's basically a league-leading figure for a guy who'd been at basically, you know, 11%, 12% for his career prior. Even if you say, okay, he's a different type of hitter now, and he can probably sustain a high number, that's going to probably slip back in 20%. That's going to drag all of his numbers down. So my question is, when the fly ball stopped leaving the yard, can he hit 260, 270 with enough walks to still make him valuable? I mean, if, he's, if he turns into being a 260, 310, 490 hitter, that's valuable. But what I want to see is do the walks come back. That, that's what I'm really waiting for. I mean, does he go back to being that disciplined hitter now that he's established himself and kind of get back? Because right now he's only got 10, un- 10 unintentional walks this year. That's, I mean, for him, that's an awful number. 
and it's going to be very hard for him to sustain performance with a 5-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. So I'm going to say fact because I believe in the player, but I think the end result of Demonic Brown's going to... I keep saying Demonic. Dominic Brown. I think the shape of the performance is going to be substantially different uh, when he gets settled in. Jacoby Ellsbury is actually up near the top of the value board at $29, but it's made up of 27 stolen bases, 37 runs. His power is gone. One home run, 21 RBIs. He had 32 home runs in 2011 and four last year in half the at-bats. So what do you think is going on here, Joe? Is is this potential five, six home run season a fact for Jacoby Ellsbury, or is it a fluke? Yeah, I think we've got to look back at that uh, that 2010 season and kind of say, okay, that, that was not real. 2011, I should say. Uh, and, you know, this is the kind of hitter he was coming out of, out of Oregon State. I mean, he was really more of a slasher, gap hitter with good speed, uh, not somebody you would expect to hit all that hard. If you look at him a couple of years ago, he was really pull, you know, pull yanking everything in that 2001 season. But it stands out like a sore thumb in his career. And I think that you go back, you look at his 2008 and 2009 lines where he was hitting doubles, triples, and homers, and he was stealing bags, and he was drawing walks. This year, this age 29 season, fits in really well with those age 24 and age 25 seasons. So, you know, I think he'll hit 5 to 10 homers. Um, I think maybe he has a 15-homer season left in him, but nothing more than that. This is who he is, uh, really more of a pure leadoff hitter than the number three hitter he looked like in 2011. And let's look at some underperforming hitters, some experts going into this season, like Detroit catcher Alex Avila, who might have stepped up towards the top tier of catchers. Instead, he's really fallen back. He's hitting around 170, got five home runs, but he's a minus $7 player because of that terrible batting average. Is Alex Avila's poor performance a factor or a fluke? You know, the surprising thing a couple of years ago is when he hit for the high average, and he never really looked that, like that type of hitter. You know, he hit 295 the one year, and at that it was with a terrible run down the stretch. He was actually over 300 for a lot of that year. And to me, he's more of a Matt Noakes type, and I know that's a facile comp because of the, the left-handed hitting catcher with the Tigers, but you know, a low average not that many walks, but somebody who could really hit for power. And I think that when he gets straightened out, you know, a year like last year with a little more power where he hits 240, 350, and then maybe can hit you 15, 20 homers. I mean, uh, the power is the thing I expect to come back. I don't expect him to be a 290 hitter, but I really think there's 20 home runs in that bat. And given, I mean, with Victor Martinez really unable to catch full-time, now, they're kind of committed to him. I don't really think they have a better plan than just letting Avila ride it out. I mean, you'll see uh, you know, some other guys get playing time, but it, it's going to be Avila down the stretch. I would stick with him. I think that you're looking at a second half where he'll hit 260, 270 with enough power to be a very valuable catcher. Even Honestly, I think he's a legitimate mixed game option. Obviously, he's going to play in an AL league, but I think he's a, a legitimate mixed game option in the second half. Another touted catcher coming in was Rob Brantley in Miami, more of a sleeper type guy. He is batting 241 which looks like Ty Cobb next to Avila, for instance, but he has no home runs, just 12 RBIs in that anemic Miami offense. Joe, young catchers are often tough to call, and I'm going to ask you to call it fact or fluke. This is a fact. He was rushed. I mean, he had no business being pushed to the major leagues as quickly as he got up there. I mean, you talk about a guy who, you know, had 50 games above A ball and really only had 100 games above, excuse me, 50 games above double A, 100 above A ball. And it's not like he was dominant at triple A last year. I mean, he was scuffling at Toledo pretty badly when he was traded, had a good two weeks at New Orleans, and the Marlins said, well, let's get him up here. I think in part because, you know, they, they felt like they had to show something for the trade. And, I mean, this is a guy who's just been rushed to the majors. He's still just 23 years old. I think they've got to send him back down. Let him, let him, get, let him develop a AAA. He's just, to me, a really bad example of what can happen. And remember, you know, it's funny, and again, I know this is going to sound easy because of the teams involved. 
when the Marlins traded for Cameron Mabin, the Tigers had rushed Mabin to the majors that year. I want to say it was 2006, and they were struggling, and Mabin was playing well, and Mabin was 20 years old. They rushed him to the majors. I think because he had major league experience, the Marlins decided, oh, well, we can you know, get him to the majors, and Kevin Mabin's never really recovered from that. Um, maybe he'll never be the player that he might have been otherwise, but to me there's no question that Brantley's been, been rushed here in that same regard. He's got to go back down to the minor leagues. Looking at some overperforming pitchers, I don't know many people who would have guessed that the best Roto dollar production in Major League Baseball would belong to a 32-year-old Japanese rookie, but here's Hisashi Iwakuma. He's got seven wins, 179 ERA, 082 whip with 87 strikeouts in 95 and a third. We don't expect him to finish the year with an ERA under two, I don't imagine. But is this pitcher a fact or a fluke? I think he's a fact. Um, you know, I want to give. I want to say it was Jason Collette of Rotowire who was really on him at the start of the year. Uh, I didn't. I, I didn't necessarily believe. I thought he was in good shape because of that park. But I thought that was the main thing he had going for him. I saw him as kind of almost Shigatoshi Hasegawa type, a number three starter, command, control, not a ton of velocity. And he's what he's done is, you know, he's missed bats, but he's not walked anybody, just 13 unintentional walks all year. Yeah, he benefits from that ballpark, but he also has to put up with the fact that they're not going to get him a whole lot of wins. He's gotten seven wins so far this year, which is an entire season for some years for Felix Hernandez with the run support he gets. So, you know, a lot of things have gone right so far this year. Uh, I think, again, I think he's somebody who's a good mid-rotation starter and an absolute trade high candidate. I know that seems obvious, but, you know, you've gotten the best you're going to get out of Iwakuma. Plus, I'm not, you know, we don't know necessarily if he's going to hold up for, you know, 32 starts of a major league, uh, in a major league role. Sometimes that's been an issue for the Japanese pitchers coming over. Remember last year, Iwakuma made just 16 starts and spent part of the year in the bullpen. So I think now's a very good time to get out from under him. Bartolo Colon of the A's is a top twenty dollar value. This sounds amazing to me. Nine wins, a two ninety two, one oh nine. He's a seventeen dollar pitcher, and of course, his name did come up with the biogenesis issue. Is Bartolo Colon's uh, current tremendous performance a fact, a drug a drug aided fact, or a fluke? If there's a drug out there that causes you to throw more strikes, I am unfamiliar with it. I would be interested in taking it. Uh, but as far as Cologne is concerned, you know, he reminds me a little bit of late career Kurt Schilling. Where I mean, remember, Cologne's always been this kind of guy. He's going to throw mostly fastballs. He's going to throw it at the bottom of the zone and 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 you know do what you will with it. He won a Cy Young award, basically, you know, with this type of performance uh, eight years ago with the Angels. It was Johan Santana's Cy Young award that he won, but you know we won't get into that. Uh, but Cologne, you know, just ten walks off last year when he had just twenty walks in in 150 innings before the suspension, and it's and it's the perfect situation for him because. You know, he's in a park where the contact isn't going to hurt him all that much. So even though he doesn't have a very good strikeout rate, if you reduce walks and both your location and your ballpark are going to reduce the home runs, there just aren't a whole lot of ways to beat you. So I think Cologne can actually keep doing this. I'm not really worried. I don't know how the biogenesis thing is going to resolve itself, but I think you've got to operate as if they're not going to be able to get through all the legal machinations during the 2013 season. So I, I believe... Here's an interesting question. I'll throw one back at you. Cologne or Iwakuma for the rest of the year? I would take Cologne. That's where I'm at. And I, I think there's an argument to be made, but I, I think it's probably 56-44 my lean towards Cologne, just because I think he's more likely to complete the season at this current level than I think Iwakuma is. 
I also think he's more likely to complete the season period. Uh, as you said, Iwakuma had some uh, some um, durability issues last year. Cologne, say what you will about him, he's never had durability issues. And I've always thought that the ster- whatever steroids he got caught using, I don't think it was for strength or for anything like that. I believe he was just trying to, to keep himself healthy. And, and the independent have, argument, right? Sure, yeah. I mean, we have a lot, a lot of medical evidence that says if you consult a doctor and use these anabolic steroids correctly and in the correct dosages with the correct timing and so on, they're very beneficial substances for millions of people. And f- it seems a bit absurd for baseball to say, but in this instance, it's a bad thing. To be healthy. Well, you've hit on the, the real key point here, which is that you know all of the nightmare stories about steroids are about you know you know twenty two year olds who are pumping themselves full of God only knows what without the supervision of a doctor because these substances are illegal. The illegality is actually a key part of what makes them dangerous, as opposed to I mean you know cocaine just to pick something is going to be dangerous whether it's legal or illegal. But if you were to make if anabolic steroids were legal for doctors to prescribe as supposed to be a controlled substance, and parenthetically, they're a controlled substance for political reasons, not for health reasons, close parenthetical, if, you were, if they were legal, they would be more safe. So it's kind of a vicious cycle where the illegality feeds the unsafeness of it as opposed to necessarily any medical risks. So, you know, the image of, steroid, of anabolic steroids, I'm not saying I necessarily want anabolic steroids. I'm not making the argument that they should be available on, on store shelves. But I do think that the health risks of steroids are inflated by the image, which is informed by things that, frankly, I don't think have anything to do with how a lot of players end up using them. And it also you know, ties into HGH. HGH has no performance-enhancing capabilities, but it gets lumped into this whole thing where all HGH does, it, it, helps, it helps healing. That's the one thing that it's apparently been proven to do. But it's not like HGH. People have this image, again, you know, like, People take HGH and all of a sudden they're Popeye taking spinach. The public image of all of these substances, which has been driven in part by you know bad media coverage and bad math and MLB for you know more than a decade now, is really far removed from what these substances can actually do. Looking at underperforming pitchers, a couple of them uh, were in the Bay Area. We're talking about older pitchers like Bartolo Colon. How about Ryan Vogelsong? He looked like a pretty safe bet coming into the year. I mean, obviously not the best pitcher in the league, but here he is at two wins, a 7 ERA, uh, whip near two, minus 20-plus dollars. Is this terrible season a fact for Ryan Vogelsong or a fluke? It's always hard to predict where a player who's had such a bizarre career path is going to go. And you could see you know, a little of this last year. Basically, the two years were, were identical. Um, you know, the ERA went up about a half run, but the underlying performance was roughly the same. But you know, it's not at all surprising for an average pitcher, average-ish pitcher, to kind of start to slow the climb. If, if Ryan Vogelsong hadn't spent five years overseas, four years overseas, and had a good year at 33, a slightly less good year at 34, and fallen apart at 35, I think we would take we would not be as surprised by this as we are by a guy who basically had no track record and then had two good years. Um, I think we've seen the best that we're going to see out of Ryan Vogelsong. I mean, he might bounce around as a back rotation guy, but I I can't imagine um, him as you know a real top tier contributor. I can't imagine making another All Star team. 
Earlier in the show, Joe, I was talking with Jock Thompson on our American League report about Wade Davis in Kansas City. We we discussed him, and he's been pretty much a disaster, although, again, a sleeper on many lists coming into the year. Three wins, uh, ERA around 5.5, uh, whip around 180. Is uh, Wade Davis's terrible season a fact or a fluke, or just Kansas City being Kansas City? It's a fact of the role. Um, I'm a, I, I was pretty aggressive about the idea that, you know, Davis was great in the bullpen, and then if you put him back in the rotation, you're going to get that level of performance. And there was this, you know, this notion that, oh, my God, he found himself next year, last year, and now he's going to go back to the rotation. And that's not what happens. Guys who are mediocre starters go to the bullpen all the time and suddenly find velocity and command, and they put up 2.2 ERAs. That doesn't mean they hold all those things when they go back to the rotation. Relieving is easier than starting. So I'm not at all surprised to see this out of, the, uh, the, the, out of Wade Davis. I probably wouldn't have put him back in the rotation, except that they have such bullpen depth that they actually didn't have a use for him. He would have been like their fourth best right-handed reliever. So they kind of had to do this with him, but I think he's a number four starter if you leave him in the rotation and you know not anything special. I, it just it, that was a misread by the the, the 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 Royals and a lot of people who wanted to find a reason to like that trade. James Shields has turned out really well. Wade Davis turned out exactly as you would have expected. And in fact, uh, James Shields turned out pretty much as we'd expected as well. He's a good pitcher, <laughs> and uh, and Wade Davis pretty much isn't. Uh, Joe, thanks very much for doing this. As we wrap up, uh, please remind our listeners how they can keep up with your work. Best place to find me is at, on Twitter at, at Joe, J-O-E underscore Sheehan, S-H-E-E-H-A-N. That's where you find out you know the newsletter, get information about the newsletter, any TV or radio I might be doing, any other writing I'm doing, whether it's uh, in Sports Illustrated, maybe at SI.com. So Twitter is always the best way to get the information. You can get information about the newsletter directly at joshean.com. You can also read excerpts at joshean. Uh, excuse me, joshianbaseball.blogspot.com. I manage that site, so it's a little easier for me to run the excerpts up there. Right now, the newsletter is 19.95. That'll run through the end of January, so you'll get pennant race coverage, postseason coverage, all the off-season hot stove leading up pretty much till the start of spring training next year. Um, I end up writing about 300,000 words in the newsletter a year, so you definitely get your money's worth. Uh, and as I say, people who get the newsletter keep getting the newsletter, so I feel like I'm doing something right. Uh, so, yeah, people check that out. Also, um, I'm in Sports Illustrated most weeks. Uh, most recently, I have a piece about uh, why the Reds should bat for Joey Votto second, and then I have a sidebar this week talking about uh, the best three, four combinations in the game. So people check out, pick up uh, copies of Sports Illustrated. They can get that as well. And I'm going to vouch for the newsletter again. I've done that in the past. Uh, I don't care if you're tired, you listening at home to me uh, saying how great the newsletter is because it's really great and I think it's something that should be supported. Also, Joe, you're a real good tweeter, as weird as it says sounds to say that. I enjoy your tweets uh, and do remember, if you want to wa- follow Joe on Twitter, it's Joe underscore Sheehan. There's a nice man in Nebraska or someplace who doesn't want to f- get you asking him about baseball because maybe he doesn't know anything. So, uh, he's Joe in St. Underscore. Louis and he's a baseball fan and he's incredibly patient. <laughs> he must be. Alright, Joe, thanks again. We'll catch up with you again uh, sometime down the road. Thanks. Take it easy. That's Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Newsletter. Our regular commentaries are next. This is Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. 
One, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. Ryan Bloomfield is on deck with HQ matchups. BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler is in the hole with master notes and leading off the minor league minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Houston outfield prospect George Springer. The Houston Astros' George Springer continues to emerge as one of the better outfield prospects in the minors. The former first-round pick of the University of Connecticut has above-average tools across the board and is showing better-than-anticipated power. Springer got off to a quick start as a professional, hitting 316 with 24 home runs last year, but some attributed that offensive production to the hitter-friendly Cal, especially when Springer struggled after being promoted to AA, where he hit just 219. The Astros sent Springer back to AA to start the year, and he has been fantastic so far. On the year, the center fielder is hitting 302 with a 405 on base percentage and a very nice 612 slugging percentage. He has 18 doubles, 18 home runs, and 18 stolen bases in just 232 at-bats. Springer still strikes out too frequently, but he does draw a good number of walks and has the tools to be an impact center fielder once he reaches the major. Springer is now 23, and so the rebuilding Astros will likely call him up to the majors sometime in the very near future. Springer doesn't have the raw physicality of a Yasiel Puig, but he definitely has the potential to be a 2020 player and could have a nice impact in the second half of the season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garapi, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on the rising stars. Baseball HQ's call-up reports this week have looked at Seattle catcher Mike Zunino, Dodgers left-hander Chris Withrow, and potential star right-hander Jarrett Cole of the Pirates, and many more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's HQ matchups, looking at individual pitcher skills for this week's games and how certain pitchers match up against the lineups they'll be facing. The scale runs from 5, which is a must-start, to minus 5, which is a must-sit. With the skinny on games for this week, here's Ryan Bloomfield looking at Roberto Hernandez against the Royals and Jason Hamill taking on the Detroit Tigers. Despite having a 491 ERA this season, Roberto Hernandez looks to be a formidable matchup with a 2.60 matchup rating against the Royals on Sunday. Hernandez's bloated ERA is the result of a crazy 20% home run per fly ball rate and 67% strand. His actual skills this year are better than Fausto Carmona's ever were. He's made huge strides in his strikeout rate while maintaining his extreme ground ball tendencies. Trust the skills and expect better results from Hernandez than his surface stats would indicate. Julio Tehran is starting to look like he belongs in the big leagues, and he's getting better as the season goes on. Tehran has allowed three runs or less in nine of his last ten outings with some pretty impressive skills of late. 
namely a 5.0 strikeout to walk rate and a 340 expected ERA over his last six starts. Tehran gets a 1.73 matchup rating against Tim Lincecum and the Giants on Sunday. Jason Hamill is struggling entering Monday's matchup against Miguel Cabrera and company. Hamill's strikeout rate is down to 6.0 per nine innings, and he's giving up a lot more fly balls than he was last season. The result has been a 5.24 ERA backed by little skill support. His 40 BPV is less than half of what it was last year. Hamill and his negative .6 matchup rating probably belong on the bench in most leagues for this one. And finally, Chris Archer. He's facing a Boston lineup leading the majors in runs scored on Tuesday with a negative 2.29 matchup rating. Archer is averaging 95 miles an hour on his fastball, but he's had trouble with his control both in the minors and in the big leagues so far this year. He's walked nine hitters in 11 major league innings this year, and he's lasted only four innings in two of his three starts. Despite the long-term potential, it's probably best to stay away from Archer here until he starts limiting the walks. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with Baseball HQ. Hey, all you daily streaming league owners, salary cap gamers, Ryan Bloomfield and Brian Brickley do comprehensive starting pitcher matchup reports every day at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes, and it's an old friend, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler, talking this week about the Tulo Maneuver. I'm not sure whether Doug Dennis is evil or a genius. He and I are among the 15 owners making up the XFL, the industry's only experts keeper league. Actually, it's more of a dynasty league. The XFL uses standard 5x5 rules, with the exception of 40-man rosters and on-base percentage replacing batting average. You probably know Doug. He's the bullpen columnist at BaseballHQ.com and a regular speaker at our first pitch conferences. He's been a periodic guest here on Baseball HQ Radio and on some of the Sirius XM radio shows. He's also a lawyer. Every season's a little different in the XFL. In some years, struggling owners decide to start playing for the future as early as late April or May. This season has seen very little of that activity early. But it was not unusual to receive the following email from Doug this week. Can Troy Tulowitzki help your team? Why, of course he can! And wouldn't you rather he help your team than one of your competitors' teams? Why, of course you would! Think about it. This one deal could be the one that makes sure that you come in first rather than second or third. Tulo is unique. What other middle infielder gives you so much? So make your best offer. I'd like to complete a deal by Sunday if possible. For my part, I want someone who will be a valuable contributor to my team in 2014. So it might hurt a little, but flags fly forever, so it will certainly be worth it. And, of course, Doug only sent this note to the few of us bunched at the top of the standings. It effectively instilled the fear of a good sales letter while pitting us against each other for this incredibly valuable commodity. Let's face it, a healthy Tulowitzki is a difference maker, especially in an OBP league. In ten years, I've never finished higher than third, and this year may be my best chance to win, so I had to consider this. Moreover, my biggest current deficits are in home runs and RBIs. If nothing else, I had to try to keep Tulo away from the other teams fighting for first. Now, in this keeper league, Tulo has a salary of $39, which would go up to 44 next year. 
my offer would have to be a player with a significantly lower price tag, but good long-term upside. And yes, it probably was going to hurt a little. There was only one player on my team that fit the profile, and I thought would pique Doug's interest. (sighs) I've owned Jason Hayward since 2009, the year before his rookie debut. I've weathered his up-and-down early career and have spurned numerous trade offers in the past, but his current price tag's $10. Next year would still be only 13 It was time. I made the straight-up offer to Doug. He asked if he could sleep on it, which is roto-speak for, I want to wait to see if yours is the best offer. But by next morning, I, I guess it was. And in my own short-sighted way, I felt content with the deal and thought, well, that was that. But barely one hour after he consummated the transaction, I received another email from Doug. It said, Mariano Rivera, you know you want him. You know you need him. Offer me a 2014 usable keeper at any position, and maybe Mo is the missing link that brings you the title in 2013. Tulo is already traded, so if you missed the boat there, don't lose out here. You'll kick yourself if you finish third because you sat on your hands. Well, I quickly grabbed the standings, and sure enough, one of the other contenders stood to gain a big bunch of points by adding a frontline closer. If he traded for Rivera, the advantage I gained with Tulowitzki would have been effectively dulled. And Doug would have come away with at least two prime keepers. And, and then who would be next? Dustin Pedroia? Yadier Molina? Maybe he'd wait a month and offer up his overpriced Pablo Sandoval. By baiting us with each player individually, he effectively created a highly volatile marketplace. I could only respond to a second email with, Well played, Doug. Well played. Was it an evil tactic? Or was it genius? Evil genius, maybe. Clearly within the rules. My bad for not anticipating that the too-low offer was not an isolated event. Perhaps I should have immediately gone to his roster and attempted to build a bigger deal. Of course, hindsight is twenty-twenty. But, at least I own Tulo. Actually, it's, it's more like a rental. I hope he stays healthy. Bye, Jason. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. And, of course, the news got worse for Ron Chandler. Shortly after the deal was made, Troy Tulowitzki went on the DL with a broken rib and he's expected to miss four to six weeks. Baseball HQ founder Ron Chandler is a member of the Masternotes rotation at BaseballHQ.com and Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of June the 14th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Joe Sheehan, the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. I really like talking with Joe, and as you can tell, time really flies when I get to have that opportunity. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. want to thank Todd Zola for calling in from the Fantasy Sports Trade Association Convention in Chicago. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. Our HQ Matchups commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. 
and our Master Notes commentator this week. Good to have BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler back in the rotation. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com now and in the coming days for features like Ray Murphy's speculator column asking if pitcher wildness matters less than it used to. Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ, continues his Anatomy 101 series looking at bone spurs. And Ron Chandler's weekly fanalytics column looks at what we're really chasing. This is interesting stuff. Plus, we'll have our regular features on playing time, buyer's guides, division outlooks, pitcher matchups, and so much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Also, feel free to sign up to follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Between me and a guy from just down the road in Stratford, Ontario, we have more than 40 million followers. I have 127, Justin Bieber has 40,400,000. So help me catch up, why don't you? Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with the wise guy, Gene McCaffrey, on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>